Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 177 of Locked On Canadians. We are your daily Montreal Canadiens podcast, and we've got a lot of trading camp and scrimmage news to get to today. Before we start, I'll introduce myself. My name is Laura Sala, and I'm one of your hosts. And I'm joined, as always, by my wonderful co-host, Scott Matla. Scott, how are you doing today? I am doing great. I have a fridge full of treehouse beer. I am going hiking this weekend. I am exceedingly excited for the weekend. I love when you say this weekend because your weekend is Tuesday, Wednesday, and that always throws me off because for me, my weekend is Friday. And I'm like, once we've done our mailbag episode, I'm well into my weekend already. I do actually mean this weekend, though, for once. I swear, like Saturday, (laughs) Sunday, actually. Well, I wish you a really, really good time. I know you've got some fun and special stuff planned, and I hope that you you guys have a wonderful time. Uh, but in the meantime, we have to talk some hockey because lots of things are happening. We'll start with some news. Uh, we're recording this on Monday evening, and today Max Domi joined his teammates on the ice. So I believe he was seen skating previously, but now he's actually joined them on the ice. They haven't confirmed that he's going to be part of the of the playoffs, but they haven't not confirmed it either. Claude Julian says that he's going to be able to leave if he has to. Like, if anything puts him at risk, they're going to allow him to leave. He's, he can leave at any time, which seems like a prudent thing to do. And given that, the NHL announced today that in the first five days of Phase 3, they've done 2,618 COVID tests, Only two players have tested positive out of over 800 players and they are isolating and they're not going to declare who the players are or what team they're on. But in the meantime, if you've been paying attention to any headlines, you're going to see all sorts of players all over the NHL that are being uh, left out of practice or not allowed to join practice and it's being cited unfit to play. So I think the this is probably the best way to go about it. So for us now, like it, you know, we're sitting here speculating, oh, unfit to play. That means that they tested positive. Like these numbers make it clear that really no, like this, the, the NHL is attempting to, uh, I guess, preserve player privacy. The testing situation, I guess the the positive tests are at a much lower rate than we were all expecting. And the same thing happened in the NBA as well. So it seems like the isolation bubble, um, like uh, health precautions are kind of taking effect. What do you think? I kind of think too that maybe some of these players, because they haven't really been skating and practicing in how many months, it could just be, you know, oh, something feels a little off. Why, you know, push through it when you've got more games and more practices ahead and, of course, with all this, the first reaction is, oh, my God, everyone who ever leaves practice or is unfit to play has COVID. Clearly, like you said, with only two positive tests, that's not really the case. Whether they were false positives or negatives and players were just showing symptoms for whatever reason, there's any number of things that it could be. But the fact that these numbers are so low is a good thing in the slow reopening. I can't believe that as much as we kind of admonish the NHL for trying to force this through – It looks like it's working, but the next big step is they head to the hub cities next week and everybody's in one place now. And that's when it's going to be interesting to see how the tests and results balance, you know? Exactly. And another thing that's going to be interesting is if Max Domi is good to go and does not get held out or does not leave, 
what does Claude Julien do with him? Because the Esprit caught Kanyemi was taking up the opportunity uh, when Max Domi was not there. And now they're, I guess the decisions get a little bit harder for the coaching staff. Yeah, there's, it's going to be really interesting to see how they work him in because the lines were set and we've talked about this. There's so many ways they can structure this lineup and it all depends on what kind of game plan the coaches want to have going into Pittsburgh. We know who Philip Deneau is going to match up against. From there, it's anybody's guess, really. Claude Julien could pull out the bag of tricks or who knows. It's maybe he'll double shift Philip Deneau. Who, who actually knows at this point? Please don't double shift Philip Deneau. We want him for next season too. There, there's so many ways they can go with matchups here and it'll be interesting. It's up to the coaches now to try and figure out, okay, what didn't work in the regular season, but you know, what works now? Exactly. It's like I described this. I was on the Locked On NHL podcast making the case for the Canadians. Uh, and what I said was this seems it's like it's like any other training camp. There's been a four month break. They're back. They're at training camp. The only thing that's different from most training camps is that the personnel has not changed. And because normally you'll have, you know, like whatever Mark Bridgman's home run fourth liner or like third defensive pairing guy that he grabs, like that guy. And then you'll have like whoever's supposed to be like their major free agent signing, which is really like a third liner possibly or somebody who's won a cup in the past. And then you'll have like those like minor changes. You'll have people that made the team out of camp. But this team that we're looking at right now is the same team that's been playing together all season. And they've had various issues up and down, like injuries, the way that they've played. There's so many, there's so many things that the people are the same, but the strategy has to be different. And a lot of players have done a lot over the break in order to improve their play. And we are going to talk about that in our next segment. So one of the major storylines of the regular season was Yusperi Kotkinyemi. And his struggles. So as any young player does, they'll have a really good first year and then there'll be a sophomore slump for various reasons. In Kotkaniemi's case, one of the things that he needed, and this was, this came from both Claude Julian as well as Joel Bouchard, he needed to have the maturity level that he did not previously have. Like he is a really young player, very, very promising. He had so much talent that he was really having fun out there in his first season in the NHL. But in your second season, when you're, when your team is really starting to count on you with some big minutes and big assignments, you really need to be getting a little bit more serious. You need to be putting in the work. And so earlier in the season, well, earlier in the season, in February, before the season got canceled, uh, he was sent down to the AHL for a reason, but he's taken the time off put in some work and even the training staff, the media, anybody who's been watching the training camp has said that he has like his, the difference in him is a revelation. Yeah. I noticed that when he got sent down to Laval and when I wrote his season review, the biggest thing is he recognized the situation he was in where he had an extra split second to make plays. And then he made those plays with authority. There wasn't any hesitation. He committed more. It wasn't, and I'm not going to say he was playing at half speed, but you could see the motor kind of clicking up and he's realizing, okay, but I'm not going to have this at the NHL level, but he's still making it like he's playing at that level in the AHL. 
He's making plays with authority. He's getting pucks into places they need to be. He's not trying to be overly fancy. He's doing the simple things. And Laura sent me the video of him practicing his one-timer, and he's just off balance, and he is just blistering pucks. He's bulked up. He's worked on his skating, and he said in the AHL he was having fun again, and you could see he was a point-per-game player. So now he kind of has to get that mindset of everything he was doing there coupled with all the things that he worked on in Finland and coming into this second training camp, I guess. Having someone like Kotkaniemi could be a huge advantage. It's rare that you get someone so young and talented back into your lineup in the playoffs without, you know, signing one of your free agents, you know, your prospect free agents or something. And I'm really excited to see what this kid do. He's clearly motivated to prove that, like, his first season or the first half of this season was not who he is as a player and that what he shows in this playoffs is who he really is. And Arpin Basu of The Athletic wrote a feature on Kotkaniemi and the changes that he's made, and he mentioned specifically that everyone knows my weakness is my skating. And what he did over this past, I'm going to call it the offseason, I don't know what else to call it, the break, was he did something that was suggested to him last year by one of his teammates, and that was to take skating lessons. And he didn't do that. He did his working out, his bulking up, all of that stuff. But this year, when he during the break, when he went back home, he put in the effort, he did the work, he decided he's going to work on his skating, and it seems to be quite improved. Like you can't say very much improved based on the, the the you know the short amount of time that he's had. But as Arpan Basu put it, you can tell that he's on on the way in the next couple of years, which is when he's going to become really significant on this team. His skating is going to be right there where it needs to be. And he also mentioned that his attitude is way more serious. Like, we love Kotkaniemi because he's always joking around with the media. He's got some great sound bites. He's got some some great quotes. He likes to make fun of Arpin. You know, he, he's that kid. But this time around, he had a game face on. He's serious. He's a grown-up. He's, you know, he's, he's, he's doing what he needs to do to impress Claude Julien. Like, I, I, I'm sure he's still a fun person. He still likes joking around. But at this point in time, when he's trying to win back a spot on a playoff roster or a play-in roster, whatever we want to call it, like he's doing what he needs to do to impress the person that he needs to impress at this point, and it's working based on what his coach is saying. Yeah, it's he. He was like play wrestling with Price in practice today, but he's also you know working on his one timer and getting power play time, whether it's on the first or second unit, depending on how Claude Julian shuffles things around. But he's clearly impressing in all the right ways, and I'm hoping so many people, you know, were harsh with Claude Julian about how he handled his minutes this year, but if a player is struggling, they don't always deserve more minutes. Looking at his attitude after this and rebounding from his season-ending spleen injury and his demotion the way that he did, you getting the most out of him is only going to make this team better, and I think Claude Julian is obviously more than happy with how things have gone. Exactly. Another thing that has come out of training camp, and again, we can't put too much stock into lines and pairings and all of that right now, but they were workshopping a power play unit. And I, I want to talk about it for just a second before we move on to Dano. Um, and so, again, this comes from, I believe it was either Arpen or Marc-Antoine Godin, but I definitely read it on The Athletic, I can tell you that. And this was the uh, power play unit that uh, they were workshopping. Shea Weber, 
Jonathan Drouin, Thomas Tatar, Nick Suzuki, and Brendan Gallagher. So Weber's in his usual spot. Uh, Gallagher was also in his usual spot, like at the mouth of the net. And Suzuki and Tatar um, were basically where they had success all season uh, on the power play. And I'm very curious about this because generally Tatar and Suzuki were playing with Jeff Petrie. And we're starting to look at Jeff Petrie as one of the the anchors uh, and the quarterback of the power play. But in this case, like when you're moving Suzuki up, Suzuki's the one that drives the play. You you put that responsibility in Suzuki's hands, which I think is kind of brilliant. But also for me, it's something that the Pittsburgh coaching staff cannot be prepared for yet. Like they can watch all the video from this year. They're not prepared for something like this. I'm going to groan really loudly because out of everything that's changed, the one major part that stayed the same is the biggest issue with this stupid power play. And it's that they left Shea Weber in his usual spot, which stopped working two seasons ago. It's so simple that I'm asking them to do one thing. Just shift Shea Weber up to the circle and have Druan or Suzuki run the point, and things are going to get so much better. It's such a simple thing. And I'm glad that they've moved Suzuki up and they've put Druan on there. And there's Tatar and Gallagher and Weber. They have three guys who can shoot and two guys who are very good at passing. Now they just need to configure them into the right spots, and this power play might just start clicking immediately because there's a lot of talent out there that can make that work. It's just trying to, like, rotate. It's like a Zelda puzzle, basically. You're trying to rotate everything to the right spot until the music plays. And I'm hoping they realize that leaving Shea Weber back at the point is not the right way to do that. Actually, I need to correct myself. They have moved Weber. Uh, so the back is, uh, I want to say Nick Suzuki. Hold on. I, like, I can't tell, <laughs> but it looks like they've moved Weber up. Oh, so I praise could be Maurice. Mistaken. Yeah. <laughs> so if this is, if this is actually what's happening, then yes. Like, I, I honestly, like, I haven't watched videos. I'm trying to read the recaps of training camp, but this is something that I'm very excited to see. And as the practices go on, I mean, the first game is going to be against Toronto, the exhibition game next week. It's coming up really, really soon. So we're going to keep watching this power play and hopefully there will be some, uh, some success for the power play. Like even if it's just for the three games or whatever that they play against the Penguins, at least they'll know that changing things up in a dramatic way is going to help them in next season. Along with the power play, one of the most important factors in whether or not the Canadians go far against the Penguins is going to be what Eric Engel, or who Eric Engels called the most important forward against the Penguins, and that is Philippe Deneau. We're going to talk a little bit more about Philippe Deneau in our final segment. So before we started recording, Scott said something to me. It wasn't directed at me. It was directed at the voting members of the Professional Hockey Writers Association, and that is vote for Dano, you cowards. Yes, it's such a simple concept. Ray Ferraro is one of the few people that I saw on Twitter, you know, when the Selkie nominations came out, which went to Patrice Bergeron, Ryan O'Reilly, and Sean Couturier, who all have various claims to this. However, I haven't delved into the stats, but I looked at it this year in games, and Philippe Deneau was better than Patrice Bergeron without the benefit of playing with David Posternock and Brad Marchand. No offense to Thomas Tatar and Brendan Gallagher, but neither of them are winning the Rocket Richard Trophy, and Philippe Deneau is doing this against the top lines in and out every single night without the benefit of heavy ozone starts because 
He doesn't have Pasternak on his wing. He's such a good forward. And I believe Laura sent me a tweet that came from Mike Kelly, who uh, tracks a bunch of stats and everything for the NHL. And this is his tweet from uh, seven hours ago. One forward ranked top 25 in the following minimum 750 minutes played at 5v5. Goals for percentage, expected goals for percentage, strength of opponent, puck battle wins, puck recoveries, blocked passes, stick checks, turnover rate, and penalty killing time on ice. That was Philip Deneau, and he finished 24th, 5th, 17th, 2nd, 10th, 5th, 5th, 16th, and 4th. And he was not named a Selkie finalist for the second year in a row. And I have to agree with Eric Engels that he is arguably the biggest, the most important forward in this upcoming series. Max Stomi is important. Brendan Gallagher and Thomas Tatar are important. Nick Suzuki and Jesperi Kotkaniemi are important. But Philip Deneau is going to be seeing Sidney Crosby every single night, and that makes him the biggest key to this matchup. I absolutely agree. And you have to wonder if the team that he's on ended up penalizing him in that regard because a lot of times I'm, you know, I'm, I'm assuming I've never voted, but it seems like the names that you hear are on the teams that are finding a lot of success. And the Canadians were mediocre to the point where other than their two eight game losing streaks, there wasn't even anything notable about them being bad. You know, they were just kind of like run of the mill. They were just struggling. There were so many things that went wrong. They had some bad luck. There was a lot of that. So like they really weren't in the conversation. Like it wasn't even they like they were historically bad, like the Detroit Red Wings. Yes, that was a free cheap shot. Um, they just they, they just weren't interesting at all. So for me, unless you're actually watching him very often. So if you're, you know, if you're in like the Canadians media, for example, or the team is doing really, really well, then you notice guys like that. But unfortunately, he is going unnoticed. And I think that until the Canadians start really making noise, like both in the regular season and the playoffs, like that's that's the only time that he's going to get the attention for the Selkie that I believe that he deserves. I mean, we've talked about this on the podcast so many times. Like, we're ready to bribe people. Please vote for this guy. He deserves it. Um and honestly, it's not, it's not like the finalists are not deserving. I would never say that, you know, especially somebody like Patrice Bergeron who's probably going to win it. And eventually this trophy is going to be named after him, you know. But at the same time, I just think that Philippe Dano brings so much that it's hard to notice. Like something like a two-way player, it's a lot harder to notice than somebody who's like an elite goal scorer or, or like a Norris caliber defenseman. And I like I really do wonder if it's just because the Canadians just weren't that fun to watch, so nobody really noticed him and all the things that he does. Yeah, it, when you're on a bad team, it's hard for people to notice you. And I think this kind of happened with John Gibson and the Anaheim Ducks for years, is that he was an incredible goalie who dragged them to mediocrity, and without him, they'd be disastrous. It was the same thing that happened the year that Taylor Hall won the Hart Trophy was, Maybe Connor McDavid deserved it more because without him, how bad would the Oilers have been, you know? And in this situation, Philip Deneau is not only the best defensive forward on his team, he's arguably among the best in the league. And I'm going to be really interested because he finished seventh last year where he kind of ranks on some of the ballots this season and see who voted for him and see where, if it was people who saw him more 
versus markets that may have saw him less, whether it be the Western Conference and such. I'm really interested to see how that kind of plays out. Exactly. And honestly, I know that any, like, there's, the voting system is not perfect. Like, there's so many complaints that we have about it every year. Whenever the finalists are announced, we do have so many complaints about it. But at the same time, it's also for the players, like, it's, it's unfortunate for the players themselves because these things, like, your, your, your recognition also counts when you're negotiating contracts and things like that. And so for me, I just, I feel like, He's an unsung hero. I I would fully agree with that. And it's because Philip Deneau does not scream star power. His two wingers do not scream star power unless you follow the team regularly. It, we talk about who is underrated. Like, for how long was Alexander Barkov an underrated player? He was the most underrated player for, like, six years in a row, which I think disqualifies you from being underrated, I'm pretty sure. I think Philip Deneau is one of those guys who flies under the radar because he doesn't put up gaudy point totals. He doesn't play with superstars. The Canadians haven't been very good, but he still gets these results. And I'm really hoping this year he got some more recognition, at least in the Selkie candidate or in the Selkie candidacy when we see the votes later this season. Yeah. So I found out from Marissa, which I, I truly did not know this, is that you're not allowed to reveal your ballot until the actual awards are announced, like the, the final awards, not the finalists. Like I thought you could just, as soon as everything was in, like you could just tell people what you, what, how you voted, but that's not the case. But I'm very interested to see like what level of voting he has, because I do believe that multiple people put them in the, put him in the top five, but even Eric Engel said that he didn't put him above the top three uh, finalists. So I'm, I'm just so curious. And in conclusion, Vote for Philippe Dano. You cowards. You absolute cowards. <laughs> uh, this is a very pro Philippe Dano podcast, and uh, I just want to put this out there because uh, uh, Sarah from the Locked on Kings podcast took me up on this offer one time. I said I wanted to pack uh, wax poetic about Philippe Dano, and she was like, do you want to come on my show and do it? And then I did. So if you ever want me on your show to like tell you all the great things about him and why he deserves so much more attention and praise than, than he gets. Uh, I am down. You can hit me up on Twitter. And I guess that's going to be it for our notes from the training camp and scrimmage. Our next episode is going to be an interview with Sean Gentile of The Athletic. We're very excited about that. So we hope you join us tomorrow. In the meantime, if you want to find us on Twitter, we are at LO underscore Canadians. If you'd like to email us, we're at LockedOnCanadians at gmail.com. You can find my co-host Scott Matla on Twitter at Scott Matla. You can find me at The Active Stick. Please subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, remember to rate us if you like us. That wraps it up for today's episode of Locked On Canadians. Now tell your smart device to play the latest episode of Locked On NHL.